Hello, this is Technology Corner for the week of October 29th, 2006, the Halloween edition. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. I'll start this week with a complaint, specifically about Spam Cop, but more generally about a variety of solutions that tend to be worse than the problem. And spam is most certainly a problem. Overnight, from Saturday to Sunday morning, I received well over 100 spam messages. Fortunately, the method I have in place to identify them and delete them meant that I had to look at only about 20 of them to be absolutely certain they were spam. And I didn't even have to really open those messages, just examine the address they were from or examine the subject line. SpamCop is one of several vigilante groups that operate what are called real-time blacklists. The blacklist tries to identify IP addresses that are used by spammers. It then lists those. And some Internet service providers use those lists to reject mail as spam. Some ISPs use the lists a little better than others, but that's a separate complaint, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Now, there's no question that organizations such as SpamCop are well-intentioned. They see a problem. They try to solve the problem. But good intentions aren't good enough. You need good results couple of problems that I've been dealing with over the past three weeks, specifically with SpamCop. I am involved with a discussion list for editors. It's one that runs on ListServ software via Indiana University. For three weeks, Copy Editing L was listed, or more accurately, for three weeks, Indiana University one specific IP address used by their ListServe software was listed as a source of spam. Also, during that three-week period, for a one-day period, Wide Open West, my Internet service provider, was also listed on that blacklist. So messages sent through Indiana University did not get through, and messages sent through my own Internet service provider didn't get through. Vigilantes tend to be somewhat pig-headed, They assume that they are always right, and they provide no appeals process. Well, that is exactly the way SpamCop works. If you go to their website, there is essentially no way to contact them. Their motto seems to be, we make the rules, we interpret the rules. If you don't like it, tough. The sad thing is that there are ways spam could be brought under control. It would take some cooperation, as I've said before, among organizations such as Microsoft, probably Apple should be in there, the various Internet service providers, particularly the big ones, but the little ones should be along too. It would take all of those working together to solve the problem, and it could be done. The problem is Microsoft and some others have competing plans each of which would mean a certain amount of income for them. So they're seeing spam, the problem, as a revenue stream. 
On Saturday, after the website update, but before I recorded this program, I got a note from Andy Mall. He said, just because I've been burned by spam cop doesn't mean anything's wrong. On the contrary, he said, it means things are going well. Someone through your service provider is abusing the system, and your service provider isn't adequately taking care of the problem. Because of this, everyone using the provider suffers. The problem is with the provider, or Indiana University, not SpamCop. If every provider would take care of spammers using their system, then their other customers will not suffer. And, as natural selection goes, they will not survive. Their customers will look for another provider. I can't entirely disagree with that view, Andy. The inherent problem, though, with the vigilante system is that such systems really are accountable to nobody. Spam Cop accepts at face value any spam report. It's possible for an IP address to be listed when somebody who signed up for a newsletter and decides that he no longer wants it, and instead of reading the instructions to unsubscribe, he just files a complaint. I've seen this happen. Even that would be okay if Spam Cop provided some process to resolve the problems. They don't. You're on the list for 24 hours, and if you get listed again quickly, you're on the list for more than 24 hours. Big colleges will almost always have some unsecured facilities that creeps are going to be able to use. That's just a fact of life. IU hosts several hundred listserv-based discussion lists. Copy editing L is just one of them. And for nearly three weeks, as I mentioned, SpamCop interfered with transmissions to subscribers and no appeal process. That's just nuts. But having said that, I still wouldn't object to SpamCop if the people who ran Internet service providers, including some of the big ones, had half a clue about how to whitelist addresses. In other words, use SpamCop if you want, but give your customers a way to tell the Internet service providers' anti-spam system not to suppress messages from specific addresses, even if they're on SpamCop's list. That would solve the problem. Internet service providers should also report when they kill messages. A lot of them don't. And they should report the real reason that they've killed the message instead of lying. Those that do provide a bounce service for messages that are rejected often say user unknown in response to messages that they consider to be spam. That isn't right. So now I seem to have climbed up on a soapbox and am shouting, a pox on both your houses, spam cop and internet service providers. Why can't we all work together to solve a problem? Moving along to the office. Microsoft Office has essentially taken over the office, largely at home also. There is, of course, Open Office, and there is, of course, Corel's WordPerfect Office Suite, but neither of those has been able to get any traction against the big guy, Word, Excel, Outlook, PowerPoint, and Access. Neither of the competitors offers a full lineup against the big guy. And within the next several months, Microsoft will be releasing Office 2007. That's the new version they've been working on since 2003. The user interface is going to change dramatically, and that's going to perplex some users. Particularly, it's going to cause problems, I think, for power users who have made significant modifications to the user interface 
and are now going to be presented with an entirely new user interface. Upgrading tens of thousands of copies in a large corporation certainly is going to be expensive. Managers, because of all these changes, may look a little more closely at WordPerfect's office suite. That's less expensive. Or they might take a look at OpenOffice, which is free. Now, neither of those offers a unified email task calendar application such as Outlook. WordPerfect does have an email client, but it does not work with an Outlook Exchange server. For a lot of people, that's simply a critical requirement. It's one that's going to keep Microsoft Office in their office. If you run a an office that is managed, you manage the calendar, you manage tasks, you manage contacts via Outlook, you're not going to get rid of Outlook for an office application that doesn't have something to replace it, and really nobody else has anything to replace that. OpenOffice has no email client at all. Now, not all companies use an Exchange server. Those who need calendar and task management that can be shared otherwise can choose from several online services. And if their email system is an IMAP or POP3 service, any email application will work. So, for some of us, there are options other than Microsoft. And I like the idea of OpenOffice. I've looked at it several times over the past few years. I've continued to have a copy on my machine. I use it occasionally. On a Mac, actually I said on the website, that OpenOffice won't run as a native application. You need to install the X11 X window system, which is an antique with roots that go back to the 1980s. The current protocol was developed in 1987. OpenOffice is an application that does run natively on Windows machines, and Windows is, of course, what most office workers use. But I heard from a reader in Montana that there is a version of OpenOffice available for the Mac that runs natively without need for X11. I haven't confirmed that, but I have no reason to suspect that it's anything other than the truth. So that could be a big plus for Mac users. Each application in OpenOffice would I'd have to describe it as being less robust than the Microsoft equivalent, but maybe you don't need all the bells and whistles that Microsoft provides. And in some cases, the OpenOffice version actually is better. For example, I sometimes receive an Excel file that has been created by a database application that runs on Oracle. For some reason, Excel cannot open the files. It claims the file has been damaged. OpenOffice Calc, on the other hand, opens the file without a problem, and I can then save the file in Excel format. At that point, Excel can open the file. Writer offers features similar to those in Microsoft Word. It can both read and write Word files, although that's not its native file format. Writer can save files directly in Adobe's PDF format. Writer makes a lot of functions from Calc, the open office equivalent of Excel, available in writer's tables. So what's in there? Calc, of course, the open office spreadsheet program. Impress is similar to PowerPoint. It can export presentations in Adobe Flash format. Impress is probably the weakest application in the suite, though. If you bring in a PowerPoint presentation, there will be features that will not work. 
base is the database application. It allows users to create databases in Access's JET format, in ODBC format, in MySQL or PostgreSQL. Base was added to OpenOffice in version 2. Draw is a vector graphics editor, patterned somewhat after Corel Draw. Math is a lot like Microsoft's equation editor. Formulas created in math can be embedded in other OpenOffice documents. And there is QuickStarter. That's a useless application that automatically starts with Windows and loads the core files and libraries for OpenOffice. If you decide to use OpenOffice, I'd recommend turning that off. Most machines these days are fast enough that when you load a program, you don't need to have part of it loaded. And the problem with having part of it loaded is if you load a little piece of calc, impress, base, draw, and math, just so they'll start faster, every other program on your machine is going to run just a little bit slower because you've done that. I don't like quick start applications. The OpenOffice macro reader can record user actions and replay them. The feature can be compared to Microsoft's Visual Basic for applications. It is based on Star Office Basic. When you install OpenOffice, the application does not assume that you want it to answer for all Microsoft documents, Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. Instead, it assumes that you're just trying the program out and if you double-click a doc file, you don't want OpenOffice Writer to open. You want Microsoft Word to open. I like that approach. Once you've installed the suite, you'll have OpenOffice Writer, OpenOffice Base, Calc, Draw, Impress, and Math. Writer and Calc are pretty robust applications. They are really a lot like Word and a lot like Excel. Draw and Impress are not particularly good. And Math, as I mentioned, is just the equivalent of Microsoft's Formula Editor. On the website, www.techbiter.com, you'll find some examples of what the programs look like. Writer's default format isn't doc, I mentioned that, but it can open Word files without a problem. Most of Word's features are available, although Writer may call them something else on their menus. Before deciding to replace Office with OpenOffice, it's important for you to examine each of the applications to be sure that the features you need are present. You can't assume they will be there. They may not be. Second most important application in Microsoft Office for most people is Excel. OpenOffice Calc imports even complicated Excel files with little problem. On the website, you'll see an example of one of those with some roll-ups and uh, some other kind of tricky things that are used in, in budgeting. If you try to open a Microsoft Access database in OpenOffice, it will open. It will open. And that's about as far as I can go. Uh, if you have forms, they're probably not going to translate properly. And in some cases, even the database won't entirely translate properly. But you can work with it. Access tables convert to OOBase. I suspect that most people who use OOBase are going to use it with MySQL, so that's probably not a big issue for most people. I said that OpenOffice Draw is based on CorelDRAW. Uh, well, yeah. It's based on maybe what CorelDRAW was like in about 1985. It's not CorelDRAW. It's not WIMP. WIMP, by the way, is a graphics program that is an open source application. You can draw simple things with OpenOffice Draw, 
But if you give it to your graphic designer, she's going to leave in a huff. And as I mentioned on the website, a huff looks a lot like a 1949 Plymouth Coupe. Or is that coupe? Impress allows you to open existing presentations, including PowerPoint, uh, but Impress is probably the least impressive part of the Open Office suite. Now, I didn't write that just to be a smart aleck. Impress doesn't handle transparencies properly. It can't deal with most of PowerPoint's advanced animations. So if PowerPoint is a critical part of your regular workflow, do not try to replace Office with Open Office. Overall, for Open Office, three cats. The quick analysis, if you need the features that Microsoft Office provides, you need Microsoft Office. If not, OpenOffice is an outstanding bargain. There's a link on the website that will allow you to download it. In nerdly news this week, IT Vibe, a British tech news service, conducted a survey of its readers. Which browser will you download? Internet Explorer 7, Firefox 2, both or neither? Uh, it's important to note at the beginning that surveys such as this are essentially useless. The surveys that you find in websites or on radio stations and television stations that allow those who take the survey to select themselves as survey participants are probably worse than useless. They're misleading. So take the results with the appropriate warnings. IT Vibe doesn't say how many people took the survey, so it might be 10, might be 10,000. And, of course, they weren't fairly and evenly distributed. In the final analysis, all that really doesn't matter. The useless and untrustworthy results, 39% say they will download Firefox only. 35% say they will download both. 19% say they will download IE7 only. And 7% say neither. The Technorati are Firefox fans, and IT Vibe could reasonably be expected to attract many of the Technorati. Wait a minute, what the heck is a Technorati? Uh, the name Technorati is a portmanteau word pointing to the technological version of the literati or intellectuals. That's according to Wikipedia. So it's unsurprising that the largest number say they will download Firefox. It's also unsurprising that the second largest number say they will download both. Technorati, after all, want to know what's going on. So, the first two are unsurprising. How about the final two? Well, nearly one in five say they will download just Internet Explorer 7, and that is a bit surprising given IT Vibe's core audience. Even more surprising, to me anyway, is that 7% will continue to use what they have now. That could be IE6 on Windows 2000, which cannot be upgraded to Internet Explorer 7. Or it might represent Mac users who have Safari and other browsers and haven't had a new version of IE since 5.2 and will never have a new version of IE on the Mac. Also could be Linux users, although I would expect them to say they'll download Firefox. As I said, the survey is just kind of silly fluff for them and for me. Remember when battery and recall didn't always occur in the same sentence? Sony's earnings dropped 94% in the quarter that ended in November. Things don't look much better for the current quarter. Last year, Sony earned $240 million in its second quarter. That dropped to $14 million this year. Sony's already taken a $430 million charge for the quarter. And most of that is attributed to battery recall issues. So if you haven't been keeping track, the recall of Sony batteries has now increased to nearly 10 million units worldwide. The batteries pose a fire hazard. 
They are used by Apple, Dell, Lenovo, and most other manufacturers of portable computers, including those made by Sony. And finally, does your car have a 10-year warranty? Cars typically are not a subject that Technology Corner talks about, but this is worth noting. Hyundai Motor America says it is extending its 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty through the year 2010. Remember when Korean cars were given little chance of success in the U.S. market because they weren't well made? 10-year warranty coverage is only possible because of the extremely high quality standards Hyundai has achieved, and we are excited to offer new Hyundai owners this benefit for at least the next four years. Those are the words of Steve Wilhite, Hyundai Motor America Chief Operating Officer. According to Ward's Automotive, Hyundai has a five-year, 60,000-mile bumper-to-bumper warranty and a seven-year unlimited anti-perforation coverage included in its Hyundai Advantage warranty. The warranty was introduced in 1999, and Hyundai has sold 2,750,000 cars in the United States since then. Also this week, Ford closed the Atlanta assembly plant after putting together the final Taurus. The Taurus helped pull Ford out of it one of its darkest periods, and in the early years, the Taurus outsold Toyota's Camry. I bought one during the early years, and by 1992, Taurus was the top-selling passenger car in the U.S. The Taurus was the top seller until 1997. That's when the Toyota Camry took over. Taurus sales in 2006 dropped to less than 200,000 units, most of which went to rental fleets. That's not a profitable market. Even with the rental fleet sales, the Taurus is now the eighth best-selling car in the U.S., or was. Thanks for listening. This has been the Halloween edition of Technology Corner for the week of October 29th, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website. It's at www.techbiter.com. You can send comments and email from there, too. Bye-bye.